Morning, everybody. Yeah. Here we are. Uh, okay, then. Let me just take a drink before I start. I wonder what comes to mind whenever we, we think about pride. Uh, maybe the saying that pride comes before the fall, or maybe like you're full of, of pride in something like your children, which is a good thing, and we're all for that. Or, or maybe what comes to mind is a situation in work or someone else where someone's been making a bad decision, but because, because of their pride, they've been unwilling to turn that around and make what they know is the right decision. So there are good and there's bad forms of pride. And this passage starts with Peter being confronted with some fellow Christians who were absolutely raging with him. And I would suggest that the, that the reason for that is wounded pride. So we're going to have a look at it and see how we can be challenged and inspired. But first of all, let's, uh, let's read it. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem... The, un- the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds, Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying, The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So to understand what's going on in that passage. I think we need to, to understand what went on previously in the, in the previous passage. So in a nutshell, Peter was staying in Joppa where God led him to Caesarea where the Holy Spirit fell on a group of Gentiles and they became Christians. And seeing what God was doing, Peter baptized them and he invited them into the church. Gentiles being invited into the family of God. This was a massive change For so long, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, had seen themselves as God's special possession, the apple of his eye. But now it seemed that Peter was opening the door to this new kingdom to anyone, which meant that for the first time, 
they were going to have to share God. And the text that we just read suggests that before, um, like our opening scene here, this message had spread throughout the region. People might have been talking about it in the streets and the marketplaces all over Judea. The message that God's kingdom wasn't just for the Jews anymore. It was for everyone. And like any big and, and sudden change, there were people who were for it and there were people who were against it. And the circumcision party um, that we just read about were one group who were against it. So the next time Peter rocked up to Jerusalem, they were waiting for him to give them a piece of their mind. And I want to look at why these Jewish Christians who, who are described as a circumcision party were so annoyed about this and find the issue behind the issue, what the, what the real heart of their problem was, and then contrast that to Peter who was bravely following where the Spirit was leading him. So why, why were they so angry? What was their problem? What was their beef? Uh, we need to be clear that these are not the same Jewish religious leaders who had persecuted Jesus and convinced the Roman Empire to kill him. This was a group of Jewish early Christians who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They were for Jesus and they were for the church. But as we can see by their name, the Circumcision Party, they were proud of their Jewish heritage. In fact, despite being associated with Jesus, that is really who they were. Way back in Genesis, God had made Abraham, who they traced the lineage of their faith back to, three promises that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, that they would live in the place that God would give them, that they'd have their own lands, and that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. But despite their, their allegiance to their history, this shows that they didn't understand it. They didn't understand how that third promise was going to be and was being fulfilled right at that moment. They didn't understand that as important as Israel was to God's heart, it was just the seed the spark, the start to what God had been planning to do all along through them. So now that more people were joining the family and their club wasn't exclusive anymore, we see that their identity wasn't really in who they were in Jesus, but who they were in relation to other people. It wasn't that they were set apart for God, but that they were set apart from others. So they were, they were proud, and we can be proud in good ways, but they were proud in a bad way. Ben spoke a couple of weeks ago about Jesus and blind Bartimaeus and how whenever he heard that Jesus was in the area, he began shouting out and he began calling out for Jesus because he knew that he was in need and he didn't want to miss out on the moment. He didn't want to miss out on what God had for him. But the people that we're talking about here, were, they were still relying on their, their old religion instead of the grace of Jesus. They didn't see their need for him which meant that they missed out on, on what God was doing and, and maybe the opportunity to be part of it as well. I don't know about you, but I do not want that to be me. I don't want to miss out. I want to see the kingdom come all around me. I want to be able to swim in deep waters. I want to be able to, to see God move in ways that I never would have imagined. If I look inside myself, I see a pride that sometimes stops me from calling out. Maybe I don't want to admit my need for a savior because I want to show that I'm capable of doing things by myself. Maybe I don't want to go through the discomfort of, of letting God deal with my brokenness. 
So I reckon that if, if we're honest, all of us would, would say similar things at some level. So how do we stop that pride from getting in the way of, of our kingdom vision or even the work of the Spirit in our lives? And how do we lay it aside so that we can be more like Peter? He was bravely following wherever the, the Spirit led him to and, and seeing God move in incredible ways. Well, first we need to be able to understand it and identify it. And as I've been thinking about this morning, I found Tim Keller's short book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, really helpful. And I'm going to just pull a few things from it. So, like a balloon, our pride, or to use another word, our ego can be overinflated or it can be underinflated. It can be bloated up like a painful stomach leaving us in pain, or it can be shriveled and, and empty, leaving us feeling broken and hollow. And this, I think, tells us a couple of things about pride and about ourselves. So there's four of them that I'm just going to chat through. And this might feel a bit heavy, but don't worry. There's good stuff coming. There's good news at the end of this. The natural state of our ego is emptiness. We were made to be filled up and to be fulfilled by God. He is the one that gives us breath and he is the one that can give us life. He's the only one who can fill us up. Nothing else can compare to him. And so if we find, try to find our value and our worth or our place in the world in anything other than him, in people's opinions, the way we look, maybe our professional performance, maybe even being a good person, we're going to feel empty. Nothing can satisfy our appetites compared to Jesus, who is the bread of life. We were made to be satisfied by him. So I wonder, is that me? Where have I been searching for my identity? And the natural state of the ego is pain. Um, I've got an injury in my left knee at the minute, which isn't much crack. Um, it's always sore. Like every day, and I'm always thinking about it, it's always in my mind. But the thing is that I never think about my right knee because there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. Our, our bodies only draw attention to themselves whenever there's something wrong. And I would suggest that our egos are the same. Think about it. How often do we get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling like we have to prove ourselves to people? I can't believe that they got that promotion ahead of me or there was no need for them to CC all of those other people into the email just to make me look silly. How often do we find ourselves dwelling on conversations to, or other moments in our days that whenever we think about it really don't matter that much? Maybe replaying that moment of road, road rage uh, over and over again. How dare, dare they took the horn at me? Our pride is always feeling wounded. So if I look back over the last week, if we look back over the last week, is that me? Is that us? Have we felt unnecessarily undervalued or un underappreciated? The natural state of our ego, it's busy. It's always trying to find worth and value, and it does so by comparing and by boasting. Am I as patient with my kids as they are? Is my, is my car as fancy as, as theirs? Wow, they got some hair of head. I wish I wish I could have a hair of head like that. You know, I'm going that way. Thing, I'm going that way. So I can't. I can't talk. <laughs> I'm comparing. <laughs> uh, 
if we're honest with ourselves, we all have things that we compare against others. And if we do the equation and if we come out as the loser, we feel deflated and empty. But if we come out on top, we, we can puff our chests out and walk tall. C.S. Lewis has a useful quote from, from mere Christianity. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich and clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. So am I busy comparing myself to others? Do we care whether we come out on top or, or on the bottom? Have we boasted in things other than Jesus? And the natural state, finally, of our ego is, is fragile, like a balloon that, that's puffed up with air, which is vulnerable then to being popped or deflated. If we're not filled with something that's solid and reliable, we're going to go flat. Or maybe, painfully, we're already flat. If we don't find something solid and reliable to place at the very center of our lives who we are, we're going to be vulnerable either to having too high a view of ourselves. And, and like the Jewish Christians here, we're always going to be busy. We're always going, going to be defensive. We might be so busy trying to protect our identity that we won't realize that Jesus has already passed by and we've missed the moment. Or we'll have too low a view of ourselves. And like, like a balloon with no air, we'll be deflated. And the fact that we are deflated will be the only thing that we can think about. Why did I never get that big break? Why did the situation never go my way? And to be clear, there's, there's a time for sadness and, and frustration, and there's, and there's times where it's healthy for us to, to ask why and to wrestle with God. So, so please don't hear what I'm saying as, as making light of, of difficult situations. But we can find ourselves in a place where we're so busy wishing our lives were different that we miss, might miss out on the one who wants to meet us right in the middle of our pain, who gave up everything that he had so he could be with us, so that he could give us comfort and purpose. So having too high a view of ourselves or too low a view of ourselves, both are forms of pride which keep our eyes on us, which keep us preoccupied with us and stop us from fixing our eyes on Jesus, which means that it can stop us from worshiping because if our eyes are, are turned inward, they can't be fixed on him. And it stops us from seeing where we are and where we're going. Like someone like walking around with their, their eyes down at their phone, we won't be able to see where we've come from, where we are. We won't be able to see Jesus, where he is, where he's calling us to so that we can follow him. And it stops us from seeing the people who are around us. If our eyes are, are locked inwards and turned inwards on ourselves, we won't be able to see and to celebrate the people that we love. We won't be able to see when they're hurting either. If this feels uncomfortably close to home, don't worry, because there's good news. There's always good news. Our identity, who we are, Thankfully, it has nothing to do with what other people think about us. It actually doesn't even have anything to do with what we think about ourselves. And how can that possibly be true? Because it's not subjective. If we've decided to, to follow Jesus, if we've identified ourselves with him, then who we are is entirely objective. 
what did God say to Peter in his vision? What the Lord has made clean, do not call unclean. Because of what Jesus did for us and dying on the cross and, and rising again in victory, like was celebrated a few weeks ago at Easter, we are made clean. And because of the doors to his family are flung open, we can look at ourselves and we can see a son or a daughter of the Father. We can see a brother or a sister of Jesus. And there's nothing that anyone or anything can do about it. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says that he has forever made perfect those who are being made holy. So we don't have to shrink away from the person that we see reflected back to us in the shop mirror. And whenever we daydream, we don't have to daydream about situations where like, we prove ourselves or become the hero. Because in Jesus, our identity, it's held in perfect balance. We can never to have like, too high a view of ourselves because at the cross, we see the price that Jesus had to pay for our sin. But also whenever we look at the cross, we, see, we can't have too low a view of ourselves because we see that the price that Jesus was willing to pay to have us restored. So as we find who we are more and more in Jesus, as we locate our identity more and more in him, we find the freedom to stop proving and justifying, to stop comparing and boasting. We find the freedom to stop feeling empty or in pain or, or busy or fragile. We have the freedom to find that, that we have roots that go so deep they can't be harmed by any frost or, or fire or flood. And as we locate ourselves more and more in who Jesus says we are, we'll be able to peel our eyes off of ourselves and, and fix them on him. We'll be able to worship. We'll be able to be truly self-aware, to, to celebrate with others and, and to feel sorrow with other people as well. We'll, we'll stop thinking, how can I make a way through this? And look for how God is already making a way through it for us. In short, it allows us to be more like Peter. It allows us to be people who can hear God, who can, who can tear up the, the script of convention and simply follow him wherever he's leading us. And, and this is what Peter was doing here. He knew what he was doing would be unpopular with some of the other early Christians, but he was more concerned with who Jesus said he was. So he had the, he had the confidence to set, step out and follow. Whenever he saw that God was leading him to open the gates of the kingdom and invite the Gentiles into the family, it would have run contrary to everything that he had been taught as a Jew. But unlike the circumcision party, he wasn't afraid or he wasn't defensive. He wasn't concerned. Oh, how is this going to affect my identity? Because he saw himself completely through Jesus. As Jesus saw him, he was able to go boldly and confidently. Whenever he was being criticized by these other Christians, he didn't shrink back and he didn't lash out. But he was able to, to confidently show how God had been involved every step of the way. And whenever that they saw that God had been completely behind everything, they too started to praise him. The good news for us is that Peter hadn't always been like this. He had a history of letting himself down because he had found his identity previously in the wrong place. An example is at the Last Supper, 
on the evening that Jesus was going to be arrested, he told his disciples that they would all abandon them. And Peter replied, even if everyone else falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Here we have an insight into Peter's previous identity. He was telling Jesus that he loved Jesus more than all of the other disciples. So like out of all of them, he was the most devoted. So we can see that his identity wasn't based on Jesus' great love for him, but his great love for Jesus. And as the story goes on, and as that evening wore on, we see that an identity based on anything other than Jesus is it's insufficient for following him to the full. When Jesus was arrested, Peter cut off the ear of one of the, the men present while Jesus went away peacefully. He claimed to be completely 100% devoted to Jesus more than anyone else, but his behavior was completely opposite to the one that he claimed to be following. And as the night continued to wear on, um, he denied Jesus. He said that this was the man he said he loved more than anyone else. He said that he didn't know him, not once or twice, but three times. And he did it to save himself. He claimed to, to love Jesus more than anyone else, but at the crucial moment, that identity wasn't enough to hold him up, and he crumbled. If he wanted to follow Jesus, if he wanted to be, if he wanted to follow Jesus, he needed to find his identity, the core of who he was, somewhere else, somewhere safe. A little while later, after the, the events of Easter, in the, one of the last or the last chapter of John, maybe, Peter and Jesus meet again. They're on the beach and, and they talk about what had happened. And Peter, he's given a whole new identity, not based on his achievements or his strengths and thank goodness not his weaknesses and his failures, but on what Jesus had done for him. Three times Jesus asked Peter if he loves him more than the rest of the disciples. Is that still your identity, Peter? He was trying to find out. And three times Peter replies, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't reply anymore, I love you more than anybody else. He's not deflated, so he doesn't say, oh, maybe I love you less than now. He doesn't say, I love you because I want you to restore me. He simply says, Jesus, I love you. And what Jesus replies is, it's so amazing. It's so kind. It's so gracious. Every time Peter says that he loves Jesus, Jesus replies, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. Once Peter is restored, Jesus doesn't put him on a six-month probation period to see how he gets on. He doesn't ask him to do something crazy to prove that he still loves him. He gives him a commission. He invites him into his work. He gives him, he gives him a purpose. He, he says that he wants to use him. The brokenness and the hollowness that he must have felt whenever he found that his old identity was worthless was replaced by the wholeness of an unshakable identity based on what Jesus had done for him. So is it any wonder that whenever God asked him to go into a potentially dangerous situation, Peter, he was able to do it. That whenever he was criticized, he wasn't shaken. That earlier in Acts, whenever he was brought before the Jewish High Council in order to stop teaching about Jesus, he was able to say defiantly, we must obey God, not people. And after Jesus had restored Peter, he told him in a kind of cryptic way, 
that when he was older, he would have to die for him. And we know from church history that like Jesus, Peter would go on to be crucified. And then after he'd said that, he said, follow me. From that moment on, maybe Peter knew where his life was headed to. He knew where his time on earth was going to finish. But because he knew who he was, he didn't turn back. And this is the last bit, if the guys want to come back up. We don't have to look at Peter and think, oh, I wish I, I, wish I could be like that. We too can find our identity completely, 100% in Jesus. We don't have to care what, what other people think about us. We don't have to care um, even what we, we think about ourselves because, because Jesus loves us and he says that we're great. What the Lord has made pure, do not call impure. When we look at who we see, when we look at who we are in the light of the cross and the resurrection, we see that we are made pure. And that means that we should never have too low a view of ourselves. We should never have to think that we're not good enough, that God doesn't love us the same as he loves other people or that he doesn't want to use us. We see that we needed Jesus to save us, that without him, we would be broken. And that saved us as well from having too high a view of ourselves. It allows us to decrease so that he can increase in our lives. It allows us to say, like Paul did, all of the things I used to care about and built my life upon now, now because I know Jesus, I, compare, I, I say that they're rubbish compared to the joy of knowing and following him and calling him my king. Let's respond.